from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show. You've caught us on a day where we're taping a lightning round. I am presently live on YouTube. Facebook and TikTok, taking your questions about your life and so forth. Uh, just a heads up for everyone tuning in uh, on the podcast, to the podcast. We have upcoming episodes, uh, counseling episodes, where I'll be counseling people in the upcoming month or so on domestic violence, on red flags, and on money, the root of all arguments. We're going to be, have some shows coming up. If you would like to be on that show to be counseled by me on one of our upcoming episodes, please write into production at badasscounseling.com. Again, it's production at badasscounseling.com. And please add one paragraph about what you're struggling with. And again, the three topics coming up that we'll be doing shows on are domestic violence, red flags, and money, the root of all arguments. So if you'd like to be on the show, production at badasscounseling.com. I am joined today in studio by KC over there in the booth, busily foraging around through her files. And Rob the Rocket sitting next to me. Rob, talk to me. Yo, I like the lightning round, Sven, because, you know, we have a certain lightness about it. And yet the topics are so serious. Yeah. So it kind of helps you get through it. <clears throat> Amen to that, brother. I hear you. So here we are. Let's go. All right. Marie over on Facebook asked me the question, how do you know it's over? Like, he's a good man, but needs aren't being met. Okay, uh, Marie, first of all, how do you know it's over? The simple fact that you are asking that question says that you're in the ballpark. The mere fact that it being over is part of your conversation says that either you're approaching it, you're being ready to, and you're actually acting on being uh, walking away and it being over, or some massive change is uh, going to happen, but it would only happen if likely this other person is what you're saying. This person needs to change and you've likely brought it to their attention before and your mate hasn't changed. So how do you know when it's over? Honestly, I'm going to tell you very briefly the little story and it's in my book. And uh, my father, when he was 25, that would have been 1953. Uh, he went, uh, 24, 52 he went back up to the family farm and way up in Kitson County, Northwest Minnesota, one of the northernmost states in the contiguous United States. And it was during uh, summer season or planting, well, it wouldn't have been planting season because he would have been out in the fields, but he was in the kitchen talking with his mother, Valborg Erlinson, uh, my grandmother. And he had been seeing this girl that he had brought home to the farm a few times, also a farm girl herself. And he said to his mom, as she was by the kitchen counter and she was paring uh, these vegetables or you know, getting this pan ready or whatever, cooking the next meal for the man out in the fields. And uh, my dad said to his mother, he says, mom, how do you know when the girl is the right one? And as dad would tell me the story when he was still alive, grandma set down her paring knife and wiped her hands off on her uh, apron and steadied her arm as he, she turned around, sort of he, holding on to the counter. And she looked at him and said in Swedish, du vet, du vet. Then she turned back, picked up her paring knife and went back to working and paring carrots or whatever. Du vet. Translated into English from the Swedish means you'll know, you'll know. 
You asked me the question, how do you know when it's over? How do you know? You will know. And maybe it's when you're pushing your cart down, you know, the uh, chips aisle at the grocery store. Maybe it's in the middle of the night when you wake up one time. Maybe it's when you're using the restroom. Maybe it's whatever, but you'll know. Because all, all the indicators are already there. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be asking the question. The mere fact that you're asking the question says it's close. And one day you'll wake up. And when you know, it's not hoping, wondering, figuring out, thinking about, wishing for. It's knowing. And with that knowing comes a sense of strength that does not come with wishing for, hoping, figuring out, gee, I wonder. Knowing comes with strength and it comes with clarity of purpose and clarity of knowing how you're going to execute it. So my answer, it's coming and you'll know. All right, next question. How do I help my 16-year-old son to get slash build confidence? I love this question. Simplest answer is this. If your son is lacking confidence, which obviously he is, otherwise you wouldn't be asking the question, Robin. You, If I were dealing with a regular client, if your son were my client or if you were my client and you were going through the same thing, what I would say is the reason you don't have confidence is because uh, confidence is broken down into the Latin is simply confides, with strength or with faith faith in self, all right? Um, And confidence, if you don't have it, it's because you have some other voice inside of you saying you're not worthy of confidence, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you're no good. A self sort of, uh, some sort of loop is running in your son's mind that says, that is questioning himself, doubting himself, thinking he's ugly or stupid or to this or not enough that. And so the goal to building confidence is, or the task to building confidence is two things, really. One, it's getting all that crap out. All of those messages and identifying where those messages came from. So if you want to do your son a favor, you can have these conversations with him, but you can also buy him a pad of pen and paper. So my mom did when I was about 13 or 14. She said, Sven, just start journaling all your stuff. But you can also give him prompts of what he can be journaling about and what he needs to be journaling about. And you can actually explain this to him or go back and have him listen to this podcast when it posts in September, late September or whenever this one's going up. And uh, But what he needs to do is begin to identify what are the messages inside of him. Oh, I'm no good. Uh, gee, I'm not smart, whatever. He can identify what those messages are the, the, and just write down the thoughts. When you're doubting yourself, son, what are the thoughts? Write those down. And then if you, if you really want to do the work, where did those voices come from? And if you say that to your son, son, you need to begin to identify where I or your father or your other mother or whatever his parent situation or your grandmother who raised you, where have we implanted those messages or contributed to those messages? And your son may be reluctant to do so because he doesn't want you to feel bad. But if you have in fact contributed contributed to it, if you have contributed to his doubting himself or thinking is less than, then nothing will be more healing than you fessing up to it and saying, no, let's get that out of you. That, give me those dirty messages back, okay? Um, and so one is uh, pulling out those negative messages that he has inside of him. But then the second thing is giving him tasks that he needs to accomplish because we feel stronger when we accomplish something. I had a client just this week say, you know, Sven, I've always had this belief inside of me that I'm not capable. You know, this is like a 35-year-old woman. I'm just not capable, afraid to engage in life, you know, and so forth, not capable. And that's because she was never given task, taught a task, and then given the task to do it on their own. Back when I was waiting tables and I would train other servers, <clears throat> I would show them how to do something. Let's say I'm teaching them how to use a particular uh, screen inside the computer for putting in orders. So let's say it's the drink screen. And I would show them and then uh, or I'd tell them how I'm going to do it. Then I'd show them how to do it. Then I'd have them do it. 
tell, show, and then do. And then, and just make it simple tasks in the beginning. Confidence builders, as my high school wrestling coach used to say, just little things. And then, and praise with that. And, but don't always praise every single time. Infrequent positive response, positive feedback. Infrequent. So the first time, the second time, the fourth time, you praise them. Then you praise the seventh time. Then you praise the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th time. Then you praise the 22nd time. All right. Infrequent. Uh, but it's giving them tasks that they can feel a sense of accomplishment with, but they need to do it on their own. And this is why children going out on their own and not getting praise every single time, children having to accomplish things, this is good for them. It builds that very confidence. But so often what we do when we're raising kids, and mine are 28 and 30, 29 and 32 years old, when we're raising kids, we want to do so much for them, but we're not doing a child any favors by doing anything for them. A woman I love very, very, very much, family member, extended family member, she had an epiphany, she has some kids, and she had an epiphany uh, herself about, oh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, she realized when her kids were in high school, she realized that she said, I had read an article that says it's not good to do everything for your kids. And for her, this was an epiphany, like, holy shit, the heavens open up and the, the fucking dove descends and all that shit, you know? Um, and the epiphany was, you know, that I'm not supposed to do everything for my kids, that it's actually good for them in long-term to teach them how to fry an egg, to teach them how to do laundry, to teach them how to darn their own socks. I still darn my own socks. My mom taught me how to do it. You wanna know why she taught us, all six of us kids, how to darn our own socks? Because darn it, she was sick of darning all of our own old socks. And I mean, come on, you got six kids, five of them boys, and the sixth one is a girl who's more active than the boys? It's just like, that's a lot of socks and a lot of laundry. So she was teaching us. In fact, I got to tell you guys this. It was uh, junior high and Mrs. Hansen was sitting next to my mom at one of my football games. One of the rare times before high school that either of my parents went to any of my sporting events. And uh, not because they didn't love me, but they had six fucking kids. And I didn't begrudge them that. I didn't give a shit if they were there. I was playing for me, not them. And she tells me afterwards, she says, I was sitting next to Mrs. Hansen and uh, her son, Pete, was my best friend at the time. And uh, Mrs. Hansen said to mom, Charlotte, how do you get Sven's pants, his football pants? You know, they were white at the time, just very basic. How do you get his pants and his jersey so white? And she says, I don't. And uh, Mrs. Hansen says, what do you mean? She said, oh, I have Sven do it. I, I just, I've got arthritis, plus I've got six kids. I can't be scrubbing out blood and, and grass and, you know, smelly ass or whatever. My mom wouldn't have said that part, but uh, I can't be doing that. So I taught him how, and she taught me, you take it down, you put it in a, a little tub of, uh, or bucket of soapy warm water and you let it soak. And then she had an old fashioned scrub board, you know, like those uh, bluegrass bands, scrub board, right? That's a scrubbing board. And I'd put that in utility sink and scrub the fuck out of my, the whitest fucking pants ever. And I was like 12 or 13 and I was getting praise from a mother who, you know, saw my pants. It's like, ah, I stood a little taller, a little prouder. All right, Rob is itching to say something. What do you want to say, Rob? I'm just thinking that last night my uh, daughter called me and said, uh, Dad, um, I'm in the car. I got to go, but the key will not turn in the ignition. What am I going to do? And I said, turn the steering wheel just a little bit. That'll, that'll unlock it. She goes, oh, wow, that's so great. I said, that's what dads are for, but join AAA. <laughs> Next time. All right. Um... All right, here we go. Long distance. Any advice on how to make it work? 
Uh, yeah, actually, that's on our queue as well. We're going to be doing a piece on long-distance relationships. And I actually just did a blog post on long-distance relationships for the month of August, I believe it was, on badasscounseling.com. Really, a lot of questions I addressed there. I was in a long-distance relationship that ended up being my second marriage. And um, any advice on how to make it work? Yeah, absolutely. You want to know the single biggest thing you can do to make a long-distance relationship work? In your own time, you need to be journaling the fuck about fear. Nothing will kill a long-distance relationship, sure, quicker, meaner, anything than fear. The fears that creep in of when you're not hearing from them. See, when I'm in a relationship with someone that I'm seeing every day or, you know, that, you know, we're bumping into each other and, you know, angling for a spot at the sink or whatever it might be, there's those constant reassurances that come from a little touch or a little smile or, you know, a little favor, bring up your morning coffee or whatever it might be. But when you're going long distance, all that shit is gone. It's only when we're on the line with each other or when we're FaceTiming uh, that we're getting those reassurances. And sometimes those are so loaded or packed into a two-hour conversation or what have you. And what happens when we're not getting constant reassurances? Very often, what happens is the fears start to well up. So if you are not dwelling on going into, purging out, addressing, finding the origins of fear, that thing... It, it, your long distance relationship has a much uh, greater uh, propensity to fail because the fear is what's going to kill it. And in all likelihood, fear of are they cheating? I mean, come on, let's be honest. That's what it boils down to in more cases than not. Fear of are they cheating? Fear of are we serious? Are we ever going to be together? You know, where we're in the same city, but it's always the fears. All right. And you got to go into those. You have to address the fears and talk about it with your partner. Next question. Lauren makes a snarky comment. Look at that. You could you could have started a business cleaning and whitening your teammates' socks. Yes, I could have started a business. And the funny thing about that, I had an older brother. When he was in sixth grade, I remember because I was in first grade, he used to go to the neighborhood Spur gas station and he'd buy these lily, they were called lollies. And it was like this little round sucker about this big. It was a total round and it was on a white stick. And he'd buy a whole bucket of those about that big. Maybe he'd pay like, I don't know, $6. And they sold for a quarter or a nickel each back then in the 70s, right? And they sold for a nickel each. He'd take them to school and sell them for a quarter each. He was the industrious one. He's the one that recently retired, you know, and sold his all his properties and stuff for, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred million. I don't fucking know. But he's always been the business guy. I was never the business guy. It's like, I like scrubbing my own socks. But if I can, I, you know, I get an allowance. What do I need it for? You know, what do I need more money for? I get an allowance. You know what I could buy in a, with an allowance back then, a quarter on Saturdays when I got my allowance? Candy bar was 15 cents. I still had 10 cents left over. I could have gotten two lollies, all sorts of stuff. Um, all right. And it was always candy, by the way. But I also had a paper out. So that, you know, how much business can one you know, eight, 10, 12 year old handle. All right, here we go. What do you do when you don't have a support system when you're down? Your support system, if you don't have one, becomes, and you guys are sick of me hearing, hearing me say this, but pen and paper, writing letters, flushing out your feelings, journaling out your feelings, that was mine. I was on my own between uh, my present relationship and my previous relation, previous big relationship before that, I was alone for 10 years. And did some dating in there, fell in love once. Um, but uh, that if you can't master alone time and being alone, uh, you're not ready for a relationship. And what it means to master it, master it is that I have ways of becoming friends with myself. I have ways of soothing myself. I have ways of getting out my own pain, my own fears, my own sadness. And so what do you do? Uh, you, you go into yourself. All right, next question. I don't miss him, but miss having someone. 
how to not rely on others for my happiness and not feel alone. Well, I would tell you to feel alone. The goal is to feel. If you're feeling alone, feel it. Allow it to come up. Don't run from it. Don't busy yourself so that you can keep your mind off it. Don't go, you know, take care of your mother. Don't go, you know, whatever. Allow yourself to feel it and flush and flush and flush. And then the more you get all the fears and the pain out, then you will have natural desires that come out of that. How you want to do things or what you want to do that breathes life into you. You'll begin to more and more create a love where you're pouring love into your own love cup. You're not dependent anywhere nearly as much on someone else pouring love into your love cup. All right, next question. Best advice for trying to reduce meds for mental health without withdrawals or recurrence. I am not a mental health professional. You guys know that. I'm a soul counselor. And so I am neither encouraging nor discouraging anything to do with medication. That is not my field. Talk to your doctor. However, I'm going to say this. Um, any sort of dependence can be reduced. Dependence on a person, dependence on a place, dependence on a thing, dependence on the bottle can be reduced. It's being driven by the feelings that are going on inside of you. And the more you get those feelings out of you, the more you go into what it is you're really trying to get away from. What is it you're trying to reduce? Going into all that and flushing all that crap, the pain, the fears uh, out, the anxiety, the depression, flushing, 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 the less you become dependent upon something to, to escape from that life you're living. And the goal is to get out of this life that you're living, to get all the crud out of it so that the life and build it into something that you have no desire to escape whether it's by gambling, by cheating, by the bottle, by you know binging and purging, whatever it is, the, you're escaping. It's to build a life that you have no desire to escape. And that begins with getting the things out of your life, having the courage to say no to the people, places, plans, purposes, pursuits that are sucking the life out of you. So you gotta read your energy. What are the things in my life that are really fucking draining me that I have to conjure up energy to go do? Have you ever had a job where you sit out there and not just on Monday mornings, but every morning you sit out in your car before you walk into the office and you're just like trying to get yourself pumped up to go in, yeah, guess what? That job is not your pursuit. It's not what breathes life into you. And it takes the courage in the relationships where you have to conjure up energy or through the, the places or the things in life that just fucking bore you or bleed you or numb you, you have to begin to say no to those. You either have to cut them out entirely or to begin to reduce them because you can't create a life that you actually love until you're removing the things that you don't love. And all of that requires the courage to say the scariest word in the English language, and that is the word no. When it comes to healing, when it comes to self-help, when it comes to having a life that you're proud of and excited about, if you can't say the word no, you ain't ready. We just uh, uh, taped an episode of The Counseling Show just this morning, and we had a client who had had all manner of shit done to her, uh, Britt. And Britt was saying, you know, she recently, just in the last year, uh, when she was 28, 29, cut her family out of her life because it was just so awful. That was an immense no. That was the biggest no of her life. And uh, that's what you're gonna have to have the courage to do, to begin to say no to the things that aren't you. And that means you're gonna endure wrath. You're gonna endure the criticisms and the poking, the prodding, the questioning, the undermining, the doubting of all the people whom you've been dependent upon so far for support. And you've gotta be willing to do without their support and actually endure their slings and arrows. Otherwise, you'll never, you'll never find your no to doing all the things you don't wanna be doing with your life anymore and believing all the things you don't wanna be believing until you can find not just the eternal yes for yourself, but no. And to stand by your no, it's not just I stood up. Oh, I stood up all the time. Yeah, but you always back down. It's standing up without backing down anymore. And that's your no rising up from your soul saying it is time. 
I matter. God damn it, I matter. And this is my no. All righty, Aphrodite. Next question. But then my daughter thinks I'm not being a good grandma if I say no. I can't come babysit. No. Thinks you're a bad. Well, this is what I was just saying, Harriet. This is what I was saying, that when we find our no's, when we identify those things in our life that we don't want, or I just don't want today, all right? My, my girlfriend said to me last night, Sven, I don't want to stay downstairs and get caught up through season six of Billions. I just need to rest because we're getting ready to start watching season seven, but we skipped out of season six because I got rid of Axe. Anyway, and she says, it's like, no, I just need to rest. I need to rest from people. It's like, oh, that's okay. All right, finding the no. So what you're saying, Harriet, is you said, but then my daughter thinks I'm not being a good grandma if I say no. I can't come babysit. No. You have to be okay with your daughter thinking you're a bad grandma because it could very well be that she's leveraging your fear of being thought of as a bad grandma. In in, in the end, what do you give a shit? Are you a bad grandma just because you say no? Do you believe that, Harriet? Because I don't believe that. And if you don't believe that, then stand by what you believe and don't let anyone manipulate you or whatever. You've got to be willing to endure the slings and arrows, the criticisms of others who don't want you to say no. You got to stand by your no anyway. That's what it means to be centered. That's what it means to be a self. Is that I'm okay with my no. And if you're not, okay. And if you're going to manipulate, you know, take my grandchild away from me, it's like, you know what? When you're ready, to have an adult relationship and hear my no and honor that I get to have boundaries too, then we'll have a relationship. But if you take my grandchild away for X amount of time, okay. But it's like, please don't manipulate me and I'm not gonna manipulate you. Now that's a healthy relationship. All right, fine humans, much more to come right after this short break. So I was telling a buddy of mine how he seems happier. He told me about the book that changed his life. So I bit. I went to the Badass Counseling website and downloaded There's a Hole in My Love Cup audiobook. I started listening to it on my commute home from work, and holy cow, it was a Louisville slugger to the face. I literally sat in my car, in the driveway, night after night, listening through to the end of a chapter or doing the journaling exercises. My wife started to see changes. I started to change a lot. My default response stopped always being anger. Now, I manage a team of salespeople, and I changed as a leader. I was listening more, not always just reacting. When their numbers started going up seemingly out of nowhere, I knew what the reason was. There's a hole in my love cup is now required listening for any person on my sales team or working for me, and I gladly buy it for them. You gotta listen to this book. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Rob the Rocket, KC in the booth, and I are here at your service taking your questions. I'm Sven Erlinson, and we are in the middle of a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. We are taping uh, what is presently live that'll go up in a few weeks. We are taping a lightning round, taking listener questions. We've got a bunch right here in front of me. Um, so this is an interesting one, Tangelo. How can you show respect to your partner, who's a man, and how to be consistent how can you show respect to your partner and how to be consistent? Um, it's a bit of an odd question because you're saying, how do you show respect? You, or are you asking me, how do you get them to show respect to you? I'm gonna just play the ball as it lies. How do you show respect to your partner? Listen, listen. When they finish, tell them what you think you heard. Sum up what you heard. Look them in the eye if you can. Um, do nice things for them. 
All right. If they offer advice and you want to run with it, run with it. You know, if you don't say respectfully, I'm going to do this, but that's a really good point. It's some of the basics of kindness. I mean, it's really, honestly, go back to kindergarten curriculum. I'm not, I'm not being facetious. Kindergarten curriculum, pick up after yourself, be kind, give a supporting word, listen, listen, ask questions. Um, yeah, basic one there. All right. Um, how do I heal from trauma without it affecting my children? 23 with two. Okay, you have two children, you are 23 years old. How do I heal from trauma without it affecting? It's gonna affect your children. If it doesn't affect your children, you're healing. If it doesn't affect your children, then you're not healing. And your trauma is already affecting your children. So how do you heal from trauma without that trauma continuing to affect your children, I think is what you're asking. Um, how? By getting into it, as deep in it, as quickly as you can. And keep going deep. You section off time in your day, whether it's at the very beginning, you wake up early, or it's at the end of the day where you turn off the TV and you go in and you take time and you start your journaling. If you have a significant trauma, find yourself a good therapist, a good therapist that takes you into the trauma and doesn't just discuss today's or this week's issues, but takes you into the shit. I strongly recommend my book. There's a hole in my love cup because it'll step you through this stuff. And it, it gives not only the theories, but the exercises and questions to help you interface with it. Let me tell you this, the fact that you're doing it at 23, I respect you for that. Because far too many people don't do it at all or wait until they're 43 or 63 and so they say, damn it, I wish I would have done it sooner. Not just because of the impact it had on my, their kids, but because it's like, God, I wasted so much life stuck in my emotional charges, my emotional responses to all that trauma in my past. All right. Okay, here's an interesting one. Listen to this one. Aren't you responsible for bringing up your family with you though, if you got out and did better for yourself? Okay, um, two answers to this. One, depends on the age of your family. If it's kids' siblings, all right? If let's say you're 21, you got out of a bad situation, your siblings are back there. This is something I see with some measure of regularity uh, with young clients or with older clients who got out and felt bad for saving themselves with siblings still back in there or people who had an older sibling that got out. And uh, there's so many mixed feelings. It's like when somebody dies that you both love and loved and hated or you love someone and they kill themselves or something. There's love and there's hate. There's love and there's anger. And, and so aren't you, the mere fact that you say, aren't you responsible um, says that you feel a burden to be responsible. You didn't ask the question, are you responsible for bringing your family up with you? If you ask the question is, are you responsible, in normal human discussion in English, if you say, are you responsible for bringing up your family with you? You're asking a sort of theoretical question. But when you state it as, but aren't you? You said, aren't you responsible for bringing it up? That implies, what's implicit in that is the imperative that you should. That means you've gotten the message from somewhere that you should bring up your family with you. If you want to bring up your family with you, if you've gotten out, if you've done better for yourself and you want to help your family get out of it, whether it's little siblings or whether it's your whole family, parents, whatever it is, and you want to, go for it. But the real question is, are you doing it because it genuinely feels right to you? Or are you doing it because you feel obligation? And then the question is, where is that obligation coming from? Whose voice is that saying, well, you should, you should, you should. Where are you getting that voice? Is it, in other words, is the impulse to get them out of it as well? Is that um, kausasui? Is that self-generated? 
or is it coming from somewhere else? That's the first question. So if you want to, do it. But the second thing is this, it's like you know, trying to help someone, anybody who's a therapist or a clergy person or in the helping professions, you can't help somebody that doesn't wanna be helped. People come to me and say, oh, will you please work with my husband? You know, he's just shut down and whatever. My first question is I always, or will you work with my teenage daughter? She's a snot-nosed brat and blah, blah, blah. My first question is always, do they want counseling? <laughs> Because if they don't, it's like, I'm not walking into that meat grinding because you're just pulling teeth every fucking day. It's like, there's no amount of money you could give me. It's just, ugh. when someone doesn't want to be there, they're resisting you. Uh, so the question is, you ask, are you, aren't you responsible for bringing your family up with you if you got out and did better for yourself? One, do you want to? Do you actually want to? Because they have an obligation to get themselves out as well if they actually want to. And that's the second question. Do they actually want your help? Or do they want a handout or do they are they quite content where they are or what have you? All right, next question. How do you handle anger and resentment from last relationship in your partner and how to help them let it go? Listen closely to the language there, people. How do you handle anger and resentment? So I'm reading this sentence. I'm thinking she's going to go with, I have so much anger and resentment inside of myself. That's what I'm thinking she's going when I'm reading the question. But then little curveball there, right? The change up. All right, here it goes. Here it comes. How do you handle anger and resentment from your last relationship in your partner and how to help them let it go? So, okay. Is is it your present partner has anger and resentment about your last relationship or is it that you have anger and resentment in your ex-partner about the relationship. Kind of a tough one. So I'm gonna read it one more time and I'm gonna play it the way it lies, the way it appears to me. How do you handle anger and resentment from last relationship in your partner and how to help them let it go? If it is in fact your past uh, partner that has the anger and resentment, it's not your responsibility. If your past partner has anger and resentment towards you, who gives a shit? I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but it's just like, just deal with your own stuff. Unless you don't like someone having anger and resentment against you, then you've got something that you have to deal with. You got to do deal with in your own personal work, journaling and self-growth. Why do I not like someone having anger and resentment towards me? But if your ex-partner, your ex is an ex, they're not your responsibility anymore, all right? So if your ex has anger and resentment towards you, it's like, okay, <laughs> I got to go. Wow, getting late, right? Um, but if it's your present partner who has anger and resentment about your last relationship, which I don't think that was saying, but it could be saying that, um, your present partner has to be willing to talk about it and just say, listen, dude, you got to talk about this with me. And if they're not willing to talk about it, you can only handle that for shit for so long. It's like, wow, got to go. Somebody who's not, why would you want to be in a relationship with someone who's not going to talk out their problems? They're just going to be bitter and angry and resentful and not talk about it. Fuck you. Don't be a fucking child. Come on, let's talk. All right, next question. Oh, <laughs> this is good. This is a new one, so I'm gonna wing it. This will be fun. Here we go. Why am I always desperate to give advice on everything without asking and presumably without being asked? Why am I always desperate to give advice on everything without asking? Um, in all honesty, I, and I love that you throw the word desperate in there. Um, can I just tell you a little snippet? When I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, I would have been, uh, it was my four degree year, and uh, we worked out, football team worked out down in the football weight room. And, you know, it's all the football players down there, plus some other intercollegiate athletes, the hockey nut, hockey players, you know, they're weird. 
And, uh, you know, all the other intercollegiate athletes. I'm from Minnesota. I got a North Stars cap on. I can fucking say that. I love hockey players. They're wacko. Um, Anyway, and I, my sophomore year, you know, I had lifted all through high school and, you know, hard and all this shit. And uh, one day I got called a name by a couple of guys who were in my class. And it was Johnny and it was uh, G-Rad or, no, it wouldn't have been him. It was Johnny and a couple other guys. And uh, they called me this name. And it was the name of an upperclassman that we all, I mean, we liked him, but he was always giving other people advice. And they called me by his name. In other words, Sven, you're being him. You're Mr. Advice. You're Mr. Know-it-all. Nobody likes a fucking know-it-all. Nobody. And I had, and that was a blow, man. That was a blow to my ego. It's like, I'm being a dick. I'm being a know-it-all. And I had to ask myself in my journaling, why am I doing this shit? Why am I being a nodal? And I knew the answer instantly. It's, it was, it's the default answer for most of my childhood and into early adulthood. I wanted attention. I wanted people to look at me. I wanted, you know, I mean, look at me right now. I got one, two, three screens in front of me. Look at me, look at me, Sven, with the frail ego. I'd like to think I've done some healing since then. But the point is, you ask the question, why am I always desperate to give advice on everything without asking? Because you want attention. You want people to think you're smart. And the, the truth is, nobody likes smartest guy in the room syndrome. Nobody likes a know-it-all. Nobody likes that shit. You know, they'll still be your friend, but it's just fucking annoying as shit. And it's somebody who really wants attention. And I'm calling this shit out because I was that person. Now it's just like, I kind of shy away from it because, you know, whatever, it gets exhausting after a while. Plus it's like, I don't need my ego stroked like that anymore, right? I like the life that I've built. I try to be a good friend to people um, and so forth. So you're wanting attention. And so what you need to do in order to heal that why am I always de- desperate to give advice on everything without asking? Because you so want attention, because you so need love. Uh, attention, people looking at you, people listening to you, even stealing attention is they're, when they're looking at you, when they're listening to you, they're pouring love into your love cup. For those moments, they're pouring love into your love cup. Which, so what that tells me is you, A, haven't gotten enough love in your life and or B, Uh, You also have negative messaging inside of you that says you're not important, you're not worth listening to, you don't matter. And those function as a whole in the bottom of your love cup. And so any love that you do get drains out. That's why you're always desperate to give attention. All right, fine people. Uh, You know, Sven, speaking of hockey, I was once actually involved in negotiating television rights for the National Hockey League. No shit. And nobody likes the smart guy in the room. You're right, because I was thinking, and I may have even said, can we have just the fights? <laughs> well, I mean, if you only had the fights, that'd cut at least out of a 90-minute game or a 60-minute game, that'd cut out at least like six or seven minutes. It's the good stuff. It's the good stuff. Back, which reminds me, back in the day, I still remember, uh, it was the uh, North Stars against, I believe, the Boston Bruins, and it was like the 70s. So we used to have a black and white TV, a portable Zenith, and I'd go and I'd sit in front of the heating vent, and I'd turn on the TV, and I'd watch Craig Hartsburg and Kurt Giles and Donnie Beaupring and Jills Malosh and all that shit. And it was the single most penalized game in NHL history up to that point, North Stars, Bruins. I was probably like 70, 1970, I don't know, eight, something like that. All right, guys, next question. What have we got? Best way to co-parent with an ex who doesn't communicate, clear lines of communication, clear expectations, always follow through. Get the law on your side as much as you can, but expectations and follow through. You have to hold this person accountable at every turn. 
Likely, if you're with someone who uh, doesn't communicate, likely they were that way in the relationship as well, or they became very bitter at the end of the relationship and they don't want to communicate. So you've been with someone, in all likelihood, who wasn't communicating before. In all likelihood, they didn't start this pattern. And they see it as a way, it's their little fuck you or whatever, but you've been dealing with someone who doesn't communicate. And now you're having to do it while trying to co-parent with an ex. And likely in the past, if you were with someone who didn't communicate, you were potentially, in all likelihood, having been there, examining what was going on inside of me, you were compensating for that person. You were giving them a longer leash. You were giving them more chances. You were doing all the work of trying to be understanding. In other words, you didn't have boundaries. You weren't holding them accountable. You have to hold them accountable every single time. Every single time. You have to, the expectations have to be clear and they have to be met and you don't back down, and you don't give any indication in this about whether or not your ex is somehow difficult with your children. So it's just, the co-parenting is strictly the issue, and like I said, clear everything, uh, clear boundaries, clear expectations, follow through, um, and then just assume it's gonna be a headache for quite some time. Uh, but you have to be strong, because if you do the weak shit that you were potentially doing before, this type of person will run all over it and take advantage of it. All right, next question. Here we go. Uh, do you have any quick strategies to deal with worry? For example, triggered in the middle of a work day. Yeah, you're worrying. It's fear. Quick strategies. Uh, in the moment, stuff it down, power through, you know, all that shit. But the bottom line is, if you're if this is a regular occurrence, it's because you've got deeper fears inside of you. And that's the shit that in your spare time that you have to be journaling about, that you have to be discussing in with your therapist. If you have one, don't be discussing the weekly shit. Go down into the origins of where your fears are coming. Worry is fear. Worry is fear. They're fundamentally two words for the same thing. Different, you know, slightly derived. But you say, I'm triggered in the middle of the day. Well, the question you got to ask yourself is, A, what is the trigger? What's this external stimulus that's causing me to feel triggered? Then you got to ask yourself, what is being triggered inside of me? And where did that trigger come from? You got this sticks of dynamite inside of you. If you're being triggered, the thing being triggered is that stick of dynamite, these past memories that have emotional charges attached to them, all right? And so we spend our life going through life trying to avoid matches and lighters because it might light the fuse on that dynamite. But at some point, you gotta go inside and determine what is that fucking stick of dynamite? What is being triggered? What past memories have emotional charges that are being all lit up when I have some sort of external stimulus? All right, I'm gonna take about two or three more questions and we're call it a day. Uh, Lynn asked this question. Rob, help me with this question. Lynn asks, do you have any books or podcasts finding true happiness? I have heard something about that. Maybe you'd like to enlighten us. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, <laughs> guys, my entire life's existence is about uh, helping you find true happiness. All my entire podcast, all of these things that we're going into are how to find happiness. That all of these forms of pain that you're struggling with, all of this stuff that you have to address is what is blocking. It's all of the pain, the fears, and the bullshit messages you got about yourself as a child got rammed down your fucking throat. All those messages, all the hurts, all the slings and arrows, all of that packed down on top of your authentic self. Your authentic self has been, since you were a child, trying to come up and be expressed out here so that you would have integration between your authentic self and your life you're living. 
But all this other crap got stuffed down and is packed on top of it. Your true happiness is living your authentic self, which means getting out all the crap that got packed on top of it. That's my message. Get my book. There's a hole in my love cup. It is designed to step you through the process of getting all this shit out of you so that your natural, authentic, happy self can flow up from within and begin to manifest and integrate into your external life. All right, uh, Karen Sullivan has this question. Fine people, listen, students. Is revenge healthy or unhealthy? Uh, general answer off the top of my head, bad. Um, it can feel good, at least temporarily, but it doesn't take the pain away. Okay, do you hear the difference there? Uh, the pain of what was done to you and all the messages that came with that, you're a piece of shit, you're no good, whether those were explicitly stated or you're not wanted anymore or whatever it was, all of those messages got embedded and that pain got embedded and you have memories from your past, whether it's your immediate past or your far past that have massive emotional charges attached to them, disappointment, anger, frustration, sorrow, grief, uh, whatever it might be, betrayal. So you getting, you getting revenge on someone doesn't decharge those past memories. Those emotional charges are still there. That's those sticks of dynamite, the emotional charges. So when we're doing the work of going into our past and healing our past, we're looking at each memory and we're removing the emotional charge using journaling, using some of the other techniques I talk about in my book and teach in my book, there's a hole in my love cup, all right? So when you say uh, you know that you're struggling with that, and uh, you know, trying to get all this crap out, you, you have to get all that crap out is basically what it boils down to. Um, you have to get all of that out. So is revenge healthy or unhealthy? No, I mean, honestly, <laughs> just simple answer, no, very unhealthy, extraordinarily unhealthy. Because you're dwelling in something, you're still allowing this person to determine your happiness, that I can't be happy until I hurt them. That means they're still controlling it, this external circumstance, and it does nothing to decharge those uh, emotionally charged past memories. Final question of the day, and like I said, we will be doing one more after this. Do you have a question for me, Rob? I have a question from uh, YouTube Live from uh, Devil Blues. Devil Blues asks, how can one... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay, you look at me. All right. Rob's always telling me, Sven, when you read someone's name, take a pause before you read the question because it makes my editing easier. So here he is reading a question. He fucking says devil blue. And then he turns to me, looks at me with this snotty look on his face. Then snotty, he starts reading. Right? All right, go ahead. All right. Point made. <laughs> I'm teasing. All right. I know you are. I got no issues. All right. Anyway, this person asks, how can one come to terms with being treated as invisible? What you're really coming to terms with in being treated as if you're invisible is the underlying message of you don't matter. You're not important. The real you doesn't matter. And for those of you that have read my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, you know that there's no message that anyone can get more destructive to the soul than you don't matter. It's even more destructive than you're not wanted or you're unlovable or you know, you're not good enough, which is sort of in the unlovable one. These are the three binary, binary gates that I talk about in my book. See, If I look at someone and I say, I don't want you, that's an assessment of their character. That's an assessment of their actions. That's an assessment of them. If I say, well, I look at you and you're stinky or you're ugly or you're too this, you're not enough that, and you're unlovable, that's an assessment of who they are. But if I say to someone, you don't matter. If someone gets the message, you don't matter, 
either explicitly or implicitly, what they're fundamentally saying, it's not an assessment of your character, it's you don't exist. There's no character or person to even assess. It's a non-existence. So the message of you don't matter is an existential question. That you don't exist. And so the feeling of, uh, you say you hate the feeling of being invisible. Of course you do, because it's sending the message you don't exist. And you don't really ask a question, so I'm gonna insert the question. And the question really is, is how do I deal with this? What do I do? First of all, you uh, detach from any single person who gives you that message, right? And it may take time, but you have to detach from anyone that makes you feel invisible. Then you have to be, again, back to it. You gotta go in, you gotta do the work of where those messages are come from, how they feel, purging the feelings of how it feels to get the message that you don't matter, that you don't exist, that you're invisible. Getting all that out, and by doing that, you are seeing your pain. You are making your pain visible to you. You are becoming visible to yourself. You're saying, I matter, my feelings matter, and I'm gonna look at them. Because the truth is, nobody else is gonna look at your feelings. No one else is going to see you. You're not gonna ever become uninvisible until you become visible to yourself. That God damn it, I matter, and I'm gonna look at my stuff. And by doing that, you are becoming visible, and that's how you begin to, uh, more and more, as you're doing this, more and more, feel comfortable walking in the world and choosing friends who support you and making yourself more visible. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm not staying silent anymore. I'm putting myself out there. And isn't it fascinating? This is where we're gonna end it. You said, you know, you've, how do, I hate the feeling of being invisible. Isn't it fascinating, the line from the movie Avatar? I love this that they never use the words, I love you, do they? In that movie, both movies, Way of Water and then the original one, what do they say? I see you. That's, you know, in those loving moments, they're saying, I see you. And isn't that really what we all want? We all want to be seen for who we really are. We all want someone to look at me if for who I really am and to see me and to choose to stay. Say, I see you and I stay. I see you and I like it. Isn't that what we all really want? But do you know what the biggest hurdle is to having someone say, and it may not be the first person I show myself to, it may not be the second person, whatever. Uh, you know what the biggest hurdle is to having someone say, I see you and I stay? The biggest hurdle is for someone to see me for who I really am, I have to show them who I really am. Ah, that's the challenge, isn't it? And the fear that comes with showing who you really are uh, is the one that has to be overcome. And all those messages that you are taught inside of you, that you're shit, you're no good, you're not wanted, I don't see you. Those are the things that we're addressing and on doing all this healing work so that you can finally stand up and begin bit by bit, more and more. Remember the, the guest we just had in the show we taped previously, Rob, Britt, that she's not gonna be silent anymore and she's gonna show herself more and more and trust that if I show and someone doesn't like it, it's okay. I'll be okay and I'll move on, but I'll open up more and more bit by bit and people will love me. But you have to have the courage to show who you really are or you will never be seen for who you really are. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, for another lightning round of The Badass Counseling Show. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. 
Executive producer Sven Erlandson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.